Hello, and welcome to another episode of Yes, That Really Did Happen. We're going to continue our exploration into our nation's pastime. Of course, I mean baseball. For the next couple of weeks, hopefully y'all don't get tired of it. But with baseball, there's always something interesting happening. Baseball season is long. The baseball season drags on. The baseball season in June and July is pretty boring. Attendance dwindles. Things need to be done to drum up attention. This was especially true in the 1970s. The 70s were a time of change and also a time of economic recession. And people were not spending a lot of money on entertainment. So how do you get fans to show up to the ballpark for a ball game when everybody's cutting back? Well, you do promotions. And promotions comes in all kinds of forms. And none were more apt for promotion, I guess we should say. Or no owner in baseball. How about that? No owner in baseball was a better promoter than Chicago White Sox owner Bill Veek. He was known as the P.T. Barnum of baseball. He owned the White Sox between 1959 and 1961. And he sold them. But in 1976, he bought the team back because the franchise was about to go bankrupt and moved to Seattle. And he did not want to see the Seattle White Sox. So he bought the team back and owned it from 76 to 80. This is the time period we're going to focus on. But first, why was he called the P.T. Barnum of baseball? Well, during his first stint as owner, he was inspired by pinball machines. Pinball machines go crazy when you make a jackpot. Pinball machines, when you get a high score, throw out all kinds of lights, and they're exciting. And he was inspired by that. So when you hit a home run, you ought to be like a pinball machine. The scoreboard should light up. The scoreboard should go crazy. The scoreboard should have fireworks. And he did this in 1960. And it had pinwheels and neon and a message board. And it was just absolutely this huge technical achievement. It really was. And it was like nothing anybody else had. And it was just incredible. Um, Some of his other stunts were... He was the first to put the players' names on the backs of the uniforms, which, of course, has ended up the way it is today. Um, On hot summer days, he gave away 25-pound cubes of ice. Um, He gave away homing pigeons one game. I Just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, 
one of the things he did before he owned the White Sox was he had a ball player on his team who was three foot seven inches tall. And of course he got walked on all four pitches. This is just the type of promotions this guy did. So that brings us to 1979. 1979, the White Sox are doing terribly. They are playing what should be their rivals, the Detroit Tigers. You know, they're, they're right next to each other, but they can't attract any fans. To top it off, on July 12th, they're making up for a game that had been rained out earlier, and they have a doubleheader. July 12th, 1979. So what are they going to do about this? Well, there was a radio station, rock and roll radio station in Chicago that had switched formats and fired their DJ by the name of Steve Dahl. And he quickly got hired on by another rock station in Chicago. So this one station was rock and roll, and they switched to disco. And this rock and roll station on the other side of town hired him, and he played up getting fired from the disco now disco, formerly rock and roll. And he started this whole disco sucks movement. That was his whole thing, was disco sucks. So he was doing this, and the owner of the White Sox and his son thought, you know, what better way to pack the stands for a doubleheader in July in Chicago? Now, I've been to Chicago. I like Chicago. Sitting in a doubleheader outside in Chicago on July. I'm not going to really be into that. It's hot. It's sticky. It's humid. And Kaminsky Park was far enough away from the lake, you didn't even get the breeze. So it really wasn't all that pleasant, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I have been to a game in the old Kaminsky Park. Let's just say it's a good thing that stadium was torn down. Uh, It just was not a very good stadium to begin with. But let's go back a little bit. Um, So it is July 12th, 1979. We'll get back on track here. They decided that they were going to let fans in. Now, the radio station he worked for was 98 on your FM dial. So that meant as radio stations want to do, that if you brought a disco record to the stadium and 98 cents, you could get a ticket to the game. And then between games, doubleheader, remember, play the first game, then they take a break, and then they play the second game. Between those games, they're going to blow up all the albums that are brought to the stadium. That's right. They are going to blow them up. Oh, well, this, this was a promotion. This promotion was promoted for weeks. It was very, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was really, um, you know, it, it was really a, a big, a big promotion, right? So, uh, so what happened? Well, the good news Hey, uh, they sold out 
the stadium. The bad news is, once they sold out the stadium, there were still about 20,000 fans trying to get in. So there was about 47,000 was the official, 47,795 was the official uh, capacity. They say well over 50,000 people made it into the ballpark. And the bins that they had to collect the disco albums were full. They did not expect it to be this popular. The bins were absolutely 100% full, so fans started taking the disco albums to their seats. Now, when you get a bunch of fans who are there, not really for the baseball, but more for the promotion, baseball's the sideshow to Disco Sucks Night, and they have a bunch of record albums with them, things start to happen because record albums make really good Frisbees. Yeah, they really do. So they started throwing them onto the field during the first game. They were throwing fireworks because everybody came in with fireworks. They were throwing cigarette lighters because in those days there were a lot of smokers. So they all had cigarette lighters on them in there. They were setting things on fire. They had disco bit sucks banners up all over the stadium and they were setting those on fire, waiting for the game to end. White Sox lost 4-1 to one to the Tigers, and they rolled these al- albums out into center field. All right. So the uh, radio station gets out there. They do their bit, and they blow up this huge bin of records, which incidentally also put a huge hole in center field. That was the least of their problems. They were then, the fans rushed the field to destroy more albums and destroy things that weren't destroyed, climbed the foul pole, stole the bases. Harry Carey, legendary baseball announcer, is pleading with the fans to return to their seats. The scoreboard, this gigantic bright scoreboard, is asking fans to return to their seats, but nobody was listening. A bonfire was set in center field. The batting cage was absolutely destroyed. Pretty much all the grass was absolutely damaged. And there were about 7,000 fans on the field. Chicago police were called. And they were able to get the crowd under control with the riot police. So, the field was completely destroyed. The manager of the Tigers refused to let his team out of the clubhouse for safety concerns. And they were going to postpone the game of the doubleheader for a later date. And then Major League Baseball just says, no, 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 we're not going to redo this. White Sox, you messed up. We're going to forfeit the game. Because you can't provide an adequate playing field for the game. And it was very interesting. This kind of has been blamed as the downfall of disco music. Which had been very popular in the late 70s. Uh, 78 was I think what most people would consider the peak of disco. Where just about every Grammy award winner was a disco album. And... The Bee Gees have 
stated that they shifted away from disco after Disco Demolition Night and produced other artists. But really, this was just a radio promotion gone wrong. Rock and roll, like today, their fans are very passionate. And if they don't feel that their artists are getting their due, they will make it known. It's always has been, always will be. And I think that's the real legacy of Disco Demolition Night. Despite what others may say, despite the modern lens put onto this, it shows what happens when a group of people feel like they aren't being heard. And that's really what happened. The rock and roll fans felt like the media was ignoring them. So Disco Demolition Night was born. I think there's a lesson in that for that. But let's not get too heavy. So that, my friends, is the story of Disco Demolition Night. Next week, we'll continue down the baseball path. We're going to talk about the interesting origins of the chewing gum known as Big League Chew. It's a story you won't believe. <laughs>